This episode is brought to you by Soporific Bedding and Beyond. Oh, the eternal quest for a restful night's sleep. You spend $5,000 on a mattress, six grand on an adjustable bed, but you still spend all night tossing and turning in an antsy twilight sleep that never reaches the truly deep drowse your body requires. Soporific Bedding and Beyond has tackled your fitfulness with the scientific breakthroughs of modern pharmacology. Into every one of their surprisingly comfortable products, they weave a healthy dose of opium, the miracle slumber solution of ancient mystics and healers. Just start with one of their decorative sheets and see how quickly you sail away into dreamland. As your tolerance builds over time, add a pillowcase, a duvet, and one of their heritage quilts. Eventually, you're sure to want to add to your SBB collection with pajamas, an incense burner, and one of their patented sleeping pipes that will help you enjoy a good night's shut-eye and look distinguished while you do it. Till now, you've probably been dreading going to bed with the inevitable prospect of insomnia. Well, before you know it, you'll find yourself looking forward to going to bed all day long, and you'll want to do nothing else. And use the promo code RERED, one word, to talk to one of their medical consultants who can assess you for having Betty Buy injected right into your arm, groin, or between your toes. And thank you, Soporific Betting and Beyond, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. James, this week is a very, very important moment in what we're doing because this is the Jalenta chapter that we're about to talk about. <laughs> you might not be aware, James, but there has been drama about the Jalenta episode on the internet and what? in the controversy, the controversy. controversy over yeah. a wolf chapter. Imagine that. But yes, <laughs> there have been friendships rattled. Is it anything like Marwinda's execution? Oh, worse. Oh, my worst. <laughs> <laughs> this one this one quickly falls into full-on MAGA accusations and yeah. political social strife of all forms. So yeah. yeah. So this one quickly goes off the rails and is only about Wolf in ways that is not really about Wolf, at least not about the words anymore. Uh, right. Yeah. It's yeah. Just yeah. All about categorization. But anyway, so yeah. So everybody should just sit back and get ready because we're going to do our best to dive in there. And I think we have a nice, a nice take on it. I, I think so. I, I think, think it's, it's one that leaves some questions open, which is probably, I think, Right. That's that's how we kind of agree that it's there. Yeah, there's questions. Anyway, that's yeah, coming up yeah. in a second. <laughs> in the meantime, um, we we have a little bit of wolf news, which is, again, odd. But wolf news here. Uh, someone on Facebook said that they were unaware that there were audiobooks of Long Sun and Short Sun coming out. And they were like, how did we, how did I not know this? And I did have to comment. I'm like, we've mentioned that a couple times. So yeah. know who's not listening every moment when things uh... come out. But, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so yeah, the Long Sun and Short Sun books are now available on Audible. I'm sure they're available other places too. I don't 
unless they are exclusive to audible i have no idea um but and i haven't listened to them i haven't even no i've listened to the previews and they sound pretty good yeah uh, at least the the readings that i that i have i don't know the readers from other things um, i do listen to a lot of audiobooks but i i don't recognize these two guys uh but i i'm excited uh especially for short sun because I really want to see how my reaction to Short Sun is different when I listen. Because as really? I told you many times, I, I still have a lot of problems getting through <laughs> Short Sun. And, and yeah, I just, know. whereas you and other people, you know, are just in love and digging and all kinds of stuff. So I'm really hoping that getting into that as in the way I want to eventually will be really cool. But yeah, they're there. They are yeah, there. I find it hard to believe that I could get anything out of Short Sun from an audio reading of it. You know, I struggled just with the book of the new sun and actually the book of the short sun might be even more difficult at, from my perspective, but long sun, long sun, I think is perfect for an audio book. It does well. And if this guy does the characters well and can manage the, you know, weird dialects that that Wolf plays with in this one, then it'll turn out well. There is another version of it. There's an older Long Sun audiobook out there, and I've seen people complain about the way that that person does some of the dialects, but um, I actually like it. People don't like how he does the, you know, like Auk and some of the working class guys who are speaking in a kind of, it's not Cockney, but it's supposed to be like a made up kind of Cockney, right? You know, you know, thing. Um, I actually liked it and I appreciated it, and I thought he did a reasonably good job of of distinguishing characters and making it work, but I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's the one big thing that will probably I'd say make or break long sun. And also if he um, starts reading faster when they get down in the caves, especially in that third book, because <laughs> that's where everybody stalls out. Cause they're like, there was a lot of wandering in caves. And uh, <laughs> yeah, if he could just talk faster in that part, then maybe that'll help. But no, I'm kidding. But that's anyway, that's pretty cool that there's enough interest out there that, that, uh, his long series got adapted. That's pretty amazing. Not just yeah. Wizard Knight, but the actual long stuff. Now let's get on those short fiction. That'll be. <laughs> I know. Maybe one day there's just, there's not as much done. There's some, you know, famous, super famous people are done like Bradbury. And, and mm -hmm. of course they've done like Philip K. Dick stories and things, but yeah, I wish they would do more, more short story collections would be fun. Of yeah. Just different, different people. But, well, I think, you know, Craig, I think peace is a good one to uh, do an audio book. And that's, that's strange that nobody has ever done that or even See, attempted you're, it. You're being mean now because <laughs> I have the first chapter out there and available. And I've been telling you like every, every month or so, I'm like, I feel bad that I haven't finished. <laughs> so, but yeah, so there, I do plan on finishing piece and I've got uh, more than half of what's left read. And it's just a matter of editing that. And then reading the rest of it. But yep, there there will be a finished piece audiobook out in the world by yours truly, just for the sheer fun of doing it <laughs> at some point. Hopefully soon. Hopefully before the uh Genome of Literary Podcast guys finish talking about peace, which should be a year, <laughs> I think. <laughs> so so I've got a little bit of time. Yes, 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 yes. But don't don't sit on your laurels. That's uh no. we've talked about how much people who write for a living, like academics or technical writers are so inclined to procrastination mm -hmm. and i don't know why that it feels like it's it's very particular to us <laughs> writing is intense i mean writing is an intense mental activity where you have to focus a lot of things and use a lot of 
mental energy all in one burst. And it's, it's, it's hard. And I think for me, at least I just, I'm afraid that everything's going to be that hard. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah, peace is there is a first chapter out there. If you want to go listen, I've done, we put the first chapter out. Um, It's on our YouTube channel and hopefully there'll be more soon. Yeah. See, oh, your interview with uh, Daryl Schweitzer got so much love. Yeah, I liked it. So I'm glad. I hope he told me too, that people are are buying books. So that's great. That's great. And I, I, like I said, I mean, he was kind of dismissive of himself as a critic in some ways, just because he wrote a lot of stuff about other writers when he was very young. Mm. I got to admit, I still find it useful. I still find it insightful and interesting. Even the things he was like, yeah, my Howard book was horrible. I'm like, it wasn't (laughs) like there's, there's good stuff in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I get what he means by it being younger and whatnot, uh, but it's still, there's, it's a useful resource. So, and, and his interviews, he's got collections of interviews. He talked about that new one that's coming out. Um, and yeah, good stuff, but also just, if nothing else, go read mask of the sorcerer because it is such a cool book. Yeah. I went online and got my, uh, my signed copy of mask of the sorcerer. Awesome. So looking beautiful. And also we're uh, we're working on that WolfCon inside WorldCon. We're latching on like a, a lamprey on a shark. Yeah. And yep. We got a panel approved at WorldCon. That was kind of the one big contingent thing that we had said when we were doing our little Capricorn thing earlier, that if we got a panel at the actual Worldcon, which is going to be held in Chicago in September, then we think about doing a little mini side Shadow Wolfcon. Well, it got approved. So (laughs) we are going to have a con. We don't know what day it is yet, but that's all right. Details are forthcoming. Point is, we are going to put together a little side con that will hopefully have little events for a couple days, all sort of wolf centric. I'm trying to, I mean, I've done a lot of things. I've talked to lots of the writers who've been on the show who are going to be there. A few people who haven't been on the show have reached out to them. Uh, There's a lot of interest from those people of doing something more, not just on the panel, but maybe coming by for a little chat. Like we were thinking if we could rent a suite, uh, then we'll make that like the headquarters and we'll have little panels or talks, or maybe we'll record a live podcast and do conversation with everybody on mic which would be cool and Mm -hmm. so all of which is to say if you were ever considering going to worldcon this year anyway and this would be the last thing to sort of push you over the edge please do because we would love to meet people we already have mentioned this on facebook and i know already six or seven people have said that they're they're definitely going so that's pretty cool i mean if we could get like you know, 20 solid wolf fans who want to get around and chat and meet each other and hang out. That's pretty cool. And we could probably recruit a few other people who find out that we're doing this while we're there. But, um, so some ideas we've had, um, just to sort of throw this out there, we thought we might do a fun little short story contest with some yeah, prizes. Yeah, a little flash fiction. Yeah. Yeah. The winners then could be read while we're there. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I think first prize will probably end up being a uh, omnibus book of the new sun poster that's without the little creases in that come in when you <laughs> when you buy the book. If if you bought the book, then you, it, there's a poster that's included, but it's all creased up. This one is not creased, but although somebody has scribbled on it, yeah, um, that, yeah that's really disappointing. You know, I'm gonna tell you something about these, this poster. It smells just like Don Mates's closet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we got a signed poster that we can give away and then we also still have 
uh, signed copies of the interview with Michael Swanwick that we did mm -hmm. a while back that uh, his little micropress dragon stairs did. So we, we thought we could give those out to you. Anyway, that's, yeah. So more information coming about a possible short story contest. We're trying to see if other people wanted to give like many papers or would sit on a little panel about something. I mean, maybe if we even wanted to have, I don't know, we, we should, we should make a thread of people to throw out some ideas too. Um, mm -hmm. But, but, you know, just if nothing else, an excuse to meet people. And I'm, I'm even reaching out to like the Gene with Literary Podcast guys to see if they'd be interested in coming because uh, I know they're sort of Midwestern. So, You're right. so and if you come, you, if you come, you know what? Maybe you'll do a reader interview with me. That's if I true. Can. Yeah, that's great. right. That's right. But also just to meet, maybe meet some names or you've heard their their master patron tag for a long time. And now you get to put a face to that name. So Absolutely. anyway, the whole point of a con is to get together and hang out. And we figured this would be an even cooler way to do it. So um, links to all that stuff and, and what ShyCon and Worldcon is. And by the way, this is Worldcon, which is the Hugo con where, you know, if you want to participate in voting for the Hugos, you can do so. And um, there's going to be a ton of other stuff there, not just us by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this is Worldcon is one of the big international cons every year. So lots going on. But anyway, I'm excited. I'm yeah, super me too. excited about that. So let's talk about listener comments for uh, the last chapter, personifications. Excellent. excellent. Um, didn't elicit a lot of comments. Um, Michael Andre Drusi so on Reddit says, um, regarding Agia as part of Death and the Maiden, I regret to mention that she is part of Missionary Robert's Death and the Lady. Close, but kind of different, no? I mean, clearly Robert balks at calling Agia a maiden. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, Dorcas isn't a maiden either. And, you know, did both Death and the, and the Lady, actually Death and the Lady goes back further than Death and the Maiden. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of the same idea. Um, yeah, and traditionally, and especially in different languages, it's used in different ways. It's not always necessarily a virgin. Uh, it, it is sometimes... Yeah, just pictured as a young woman. Yeah, but, well, he wanted to call us out on uh, calling Dorcas innocent as in trusting, naive, simplicity. He says, you leave out the branch about purity, chastity, and clear conscience. So mm. he, he suggests that maybe what is bugging Dorcas is that she is, you know, committing adultery. Hmm. I suppose so. And and I guess technically she is, right? She's still married. Her husband's still alive. So yeah, I guess. For a I little guess bit longer. That, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that could be. I get the feeling though that with her memory loss, that she's much more about innocence. And I don't really I guess I don't really see that affecting her character very much. Like mm -hmm. all the things she talks about that really drive her to want to go away there's never any of that kind of guilt or shame about that. It's always that, that feeling of being displaced or, or feeling like something's missing, but he is right that, you know, if you're going to look at the actual history of that image, then yeah, there is a certain level of innocence and virginity that is in it. You're right. Yeah. 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 But, you know, after talking to Michael about it, I'm even more intrigued by the fact that both, Agia and Dorcas 
get roped into that, you know, death of the lady, death of the maiden archetype, right? Yeah, that's a weird connection between Agia and Dorcas so often seem very different and, and Severian will talk about them very, very differently. But yeah, why, what is it about that and them being combined in that image? Huh, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't quite put it, right. I haven't put it together, well, but that's definitely, that's absolutely there. Yeah. Well, it goes the other way. Um, uh, Agia herself is actually death. I mean, she's a, a predator mm. and she intends to kill Severian. Dorcas has been dead. And yeah. Severian is the innocent in yeah. both those cases. He's the he's the one who lacks world knowledge. Even you know Dorcas coming right out of the mm -hmm. lake, uh, she has Severian saying, "Where did you learn all this?" Yeah, right. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So the constant there would be Severian being innocent and death coming in different forms and all kinds of forms. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of plays to go with that and. Okay, cool. I'm going to be on the lookout <laughs> then for other, I know, I don't believe, unless I'm totally wrong, nobody else specifically mentions that motif later on. But um, especially as we get into the play, I'm going to keep an yeah. eye out for it. Well, I think in chapter 30, when uh, when he's leaving uh, Agilis's cell and, and they're walking and she puts, you know, daisies in her hair, uh, I think that's a sign of innocence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, and, and Severian is, you know, walking in the dark. I, I don't know. I felt like it, that's kind of there, but, and she is called innocence. So yeah, yeah once again, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm stuck by it. <laughs> so, yeah. And let's see on Patreon, Carl says, I've been watching the series secrets of Shakespeare's Stratford on the streaming service history hit. On the series, the historians Alex Loxton and Dan Snow interviewed an expert who said that the term green room may have come from the Stratford dialect pronunciation of agreeing room. Traveling players often put the plays in the local council chambers or courtrooms, and they would use the room for jury deliberations known as the agreeing room for their backstage preparations and costume changes. In time, agreeing room was shortened to green room. I have no idea if this is the correct explanation, but it was interesting, and I thought I'd share it. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I, I actually never knew that, I don't think. And since my degree was supposed to be all in Renaissance studies, anytime there's something about Shakespeare I don't know, I always feel bad. But <laughs> it was you know, never you know everything. The whole thing well, happened 500 years ago. So no, I know. I'm like, oh yeah, I do. I do all the literature in Shakespeare's time. That's not Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. So. <laughs> uh, he also uh, pointed out that ages ago, he sent us an email that I guess we, I don't remember whether we uh, discussed it or not about uh, the Book of the New Sun's relationship to the Tower of London and the area around the tower. The tower is a forgotten citadel that used to be the center of government that was used for imprisonment and torture and as an armory. There was even an area of the Tower of London in which beasts were kept. The tower is only about 10 minutes walk from St. Catherine's Docks, where the first time I visited, there was a sign on the wall telling the story of Catherine, Maxentius, and the wheel. The river in that part of London has, like Guile, long since lost its natural banks. 
And there are steps exactly like those from which Severian and his friends launched their swimming expedition. It feels like Wolf could have come up with much of the initial premise for Shadow of the Torture on a visit to the Tower of London and a subsequent 30-minute walk in the surrounding area. I don't know if he's even been to London. That wouldn't surprise me, frankly. Uh, I've never seen much written about this, although I would accept it could just be my ignorance. Please note, I am not suggesting that Nessus is a future London. The, this misapprehension has provoked strong reactions online in the past. I know how you feel. <laughs> I just wonder how much of that part of London fed into Wolf's world building. Yeah, that's a lot of little tags on there. I like that. Yeah. That very well could be. Yeah. Yep, yep. Carlo Jaeger of the Podside Picnic podcast. They're going through uh, Shadow of the Torture and the whole book of the New Sun themselves in kind of a large group book club. So um, yeah, I listened to the first one. It's not bad. It's pretty good. I enjoyed very it cool. a lot. He says, I'm reading Book of the New Sun all the way through for the first time and started listening to your Shadow of the Torture episodes. One thing I've not noticed mentioned yet, but I'm likely behind on the comments, regarding the theories of the lake of birds in the Garden of Eternal Sleep. It's kind of like the Aztec homeland of Aztlan, a place of seven caves surrounding a lake. Aztlan has an unknown etymology, and suggested translations are that it's the place of herons or the place of egrets, though perhaps it's also called, you know, place of birds. Given that both Aztec, which might in Book of the New Sun lie far into Asian territory, and Incan myth, the origin of Apupunchao, is an aspect of Inti, the sun god, that they rely on solar cycles to divide the different eras of Earth, I would guess Wolf would have delighted in layering these myths into the book. I, th I think that's really uh, kind of intriguing. I, I didn't do a deep dive into Aztlan, and but now I want to. I still think, and I think you pointed this out, that maybe the Lake Avernus has, you know, more actual stuff to put your fingers on. But, you know, it's the right place if it's called the Lake of Birds and Wolf knew about that. That would be that would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Like, I think it's a really cool catch and definitely one I've never heard before. The trick with something that specific is that we just don't know. I mean, it's. It's one of those things where you're like, okay, well, this is generally South America, and well, here's something in South America, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like the, the whole thing. Um, you know, it's like you want it to have something even more specific, either geographically or or something like that. But I still, it's metaphorically so apt that yeah. it could well have been. Now, there's just no way to know exactly what he was reading or or what he knew, so it's hard to tell. But I really do like the possible thematic connections. And I also just really like that it brings a whole lot more of a South American mythic character mm -hmm. to that story and just gives you more to work with. And yeah. so, yeah, so I'm, that is totally going in the toolbox. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Def. Let's see. Uh, don't mention bats on YouTube. Uh, says, I point out something from uh, Morwenna's execution that I thought was pretty astute. He says, the thing that Severian hides about puking after Morwenna's execution is not that he did it, but the reason why he did it. He moves it to the third person by letting Dorcas reveal it 
So it might be that it was not nerves or compassion that was causing him to puke. It might have been something else. Hmm. That, yeah, that's pretty. That's actually very Wolfian. That's a that's a very Wolf tactic. Uh, I can't think of something at the moment, but I can imagine that if I thought for about half hour, I could come up with a couple examples of Wolf moving the narrative to the third person so that it would not be in the first person it would and that the motivations would be occulted yeah i think it's certainly certainly possible absolutely yeah you keep the crooks and charlatans and business babe could you appreciate your we have new Patreon sponsors since last time. Remember that there are bonus episodes and extra content on patreon.com slash rereadingwolf if you'd like to help support us. Right now, all those fat stacks of cash are helping us put together our little mini Shadow Wolf Con alongside Worldcon, and we wouldn't be able to do that at all without the support. So as always, thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to support us. So since last time, we've had three new Journeyman level sponsors, which is awesome. Thank you to Nikolai Hristazov. And by the way, my son actually had a friend who was on a soccer team with him with that last name, and that's how he pronounced it. So I hope that's how you do too. Waldemar Quevedo and Anita Hamilton. Thank you guys so much for the monthly support. Then we have two new Master Level patrons. And remember, Master Level gets you the fun musical tags for comments. Also gets you access to the Slack channel for chatting and other fun surprises like custom stickers throughout the year. So first, thank you to Ryan Shaughnessy. Man, I can help you, Ryan, if you go to detox. And to Marky from Canada, who just went from journeyman to master. Thank you all again for all the love and support. Um, I've always said we try to put the money to good use by paying for hosting services and special fun like the mini conference, um, which is I'm glad we can kind of give some of that back now in a fun way. Uh, but we promised we wouldn't just go out and buy up Wolf First Editions or magazines with unpublished stories. Uh, but because honestly, James would be doing that anyway, whether we have a Patreon or not. His collection's getting pretty impressive at this point, I must say. So, you know, uh, personifications was, did not lead to a whole lot of controversy in our comments. I know and that I knew that was going to happen because I was really getting into it by the end and you were kind of like this, this is boring and, <laughs> and, and you're or at least what we were saying about it and I was like no it's cool and abstract and and weird and I know whenever that happens I'm like yeah I'm the only one who cares so <laughs> well I don't know we're here we're going to get another chapter there'll be no controversy about it no argumentation no none no, at all no one's ever going to lift anything from this to use against us later so i'm sure that nobody uh, out there who doesn't like what we have to say has just been waiting for this one to jump and pounce <laughs> on us because no matter no matter what you say there's a way you can lose with Jonathan. you've done yeah yeah and you know how we are we're going to find every way that you can lose <laughs> <laughs> so so here we go. <laughs> All right. Chapter 23, Jolenta. Yeah, we continue directly from the previous chapter. We're less than 48 hours since Severian and Jonas were arrested on the outskirts of House Absolute. Nine chapters ago. Two weeks since Severian left the Madigen. Severian and Dorcas have been talking in a secluded place in the so-called green room. Now we finally get a name for this subspace, the Old Orchard. This moment 
this place gets compared in Severian's mind to the atrium of time. Uh-huh. This is the second reference to Valeria in Claw, and the third, since Severian met Valeria in the atrium of time, she's referenced in Shadow Chapter 34, when Severian is thinking about Valeria as he's considering all the girls he's loved before. <laughs> and he, you know, refers to her as, quote, the forgotten girl of the Atrium of Time. And then Severian cites her and the Atrium while considering the giant statues on the outskirts of House Absolute. And here, at last, for the first time, Severian's description of her begins to take a turn. The old orchard and the herb garden beyond it had been so silent, so freighted with oblivion, that they had recalled to me the Atrium of Time and Valeria with her exquisite face framed in furs. Much like everything else about Valeria, this makes no sense to me. (laughs) Comes out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, but one thing that I think is like, I've got a big circle around the name, not just because she shows up, but also this, this chapter is obviously going to be like, no matter, and we're going to get into all the sort of, you know, quote unquote, problematic stuff about the chapter here. Um, But it also, no matter what way you take that, this is a chapter where Severian just doesn't look good with women, no matter what. So much so that (laughs) Wolf even makes him comment on it again in Earth of the New Sun. And we'll talk about that. So, you know, it's not that, you know, even if you don't think that what we're going to get here is rape, it's still is not good right it's not good it's it's not good there's no way that this makes anybody i mean i think it makes jolinta look bad too but that's that's another thing here but what i think is very cool is that right at the beginning we bring in the woman he's going to marry eventually and she starts off the chapter a memory of her surrounded in furs which i don't know exactly what that is supposed to suggest it could be luxury it could also be some sort of bestial image i don't no, but right. to really flag this as like it's almost like saying, "Hey, this is the woman chapter." <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to like make it quite that. But if we're going to have Jolenta. We're going. He's going to be doing some comparisons, and right? Ranking. And and there are other ways you could do it. Whereas like Jolenta is sort of like the fake woman. Valeria is the woman he eventually marries. So is there mm-hmm. is that supposed to say there's something about Valeria that is you know really? I don't know what true would really mean, but but right. you know is something that. Is she contrasted here? I don't know. Just something to flag because it's it seems incredibly intentional that he only brings Valeria up at very awkward, very weird sparse, yeah, times yeah, exactly. that it's not natural. So he had to be thinking of something. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's why I wonder here if if he's specifically bringing up, hey, pay attention, as like on a reread, pay attention because everything you're going to see here is you know what Severian should not be looking for or how he should not be acting or something like that. And Valeria with her exquisite face. This is a big turn in his descriptions of Valeria, which have been basically, you know, Mm noncommittal or anything like that. So, uh, um, yeah, this is the first step on, as you pointed out, how all those little asides, mm -hmm. she grows in, she gets bigger and bigger and bigger bigger and better and better. And this is the first big turn. In those, in those notes. And also, I don't I get the you know the comparison of the garden and the atrium of time, and why he recalls it here. It feels mm-hmm. like there ought to be something going on that we're if we knew what to cue to, we would know. Oh yeah, how clever of you, Wolf. And you know what do we? I don't, I don't know what we're supposed to do with it. Yeah, it's it's hard to to really figure it out because usually, you know, he talks about the quiet and and the silence almost of the 
of what the, the garden was like and the orchard, but that then when he gets out into the bigger area, it's going to be chaos, right? The, right, there's, right, there's exactly. Everybody from this, the is going on and, and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but the silence seems to me like a good thing. I mean, usually mm-hmm. like a, a garden, traditionally gardens and especially English literature have a sort of whole pastoral tradition where the whole idea was like, you either go into a special garden or you go off and you live with the shepherds and you live this like peaceful life where everything right. is wonderful away from the city. And we do get a little bit of that. I feel like it, and especially here, the way you kind of contrast that, because now we get back into the the muck of civilization and yeah. And, yeah. And frankly, Severian gets pulled into all kinds of muck. Yeah. Yeah. And some of his own. Exactly. But yeah, yeah it could be something about that with the garden that i mean it is specifically the green room which is that quote-unquote room but maybe all made of hedges and or or foliage or something like that which does to me at least still totally brings up that whole sort of pastoral tradition um, right where things are innocent and pure out there but then once you get back into the human world (laughs) things get corrupt a little bit more but then you've got that contrasted with or, or Valeria's silence is a little bit like then it is kind of a pastoral thing too. something mm-hmm. about the atrium of time is then taken out of time. Right. Like, right. It's yeah. When things stop, but then you get back into the world. So maybe that's the connection with Valeria that Valeria makes him re- reminds him of something that seems pure and separate and free of all the pressures of what's going on and kind of a sort of pastoral escape. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Nice try. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I I talked for a long time to make that sentence do something, but (laughs) I don't know. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't land on anything, but, uh, but I appreciate the effort. (laughs) I just don't know. But uh, you know, the green room, you know, where all the tents are spangled about is also greatly changed since he and Dorcas sneaked away to talk. Like you said, uh, everyone is awake now, and Severian he says the green room was pandemonium, <laughs> and everyone is shouting. Kids are climbing up the trees, let the birds out of the cages that are hanging there. Remember in Hydromancy, there was a mention of nightingales that were in cages in the trees. I, I don't remember if we talked about that, but it was, it was brief like it is here. And these bad kids are being chased by their mothers with brooms and their fathers are throwing things at them and people are taking down their tents and others are rehearsing as one of the tents comes down uh Severian, in the distance behind it he sees a megathere a megathere the giant sloth that Severian heard in the last chapter it's rearing on its hind legs its fur i assume it's his fur is green as grass that I don't think that is one of the theories about the way the uh, giant sloths, uh, South American giant sloths look. But anyway, as it stands on its hind legs, quote, dancer pirouetted on his forehead. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget the best part. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget the dancer on the giant sloth. Well, I tell you what, them. they really have learned about entertainment yeah, in the Commonwealth. Yeah. yeah. So surreal, right? Just like totally yeah. surreal. And yeah, it's and just crazy. Craziness. One strange. It's it's a it's a it's a circus. It's like a circus, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's got some weird thing going. It's all kinds of color going on. Yeah, as it is supposed to be. Crazy. Yeah, and yeah. and if you do want to push that and find any kind of symbolism, the fact that a megathere sort of emerges out of it. 
um mm-hmm. and with know, a dancer pirouetting i guess that would be what uh an undying or something <laughs> yeah i don't know but and it is green right we've you say yeah. it's grass oh, yeah, green. yeah that's a good point and yeah yeah so that's certainly the undines are green i mean there is this sense that you know un- maybe i don't know underneath or it's all the chaos hides a megatheria that you can see come up and it is kind of cool that he mentions that um you see it when you saw the seemingly solid pyramid of striped canvas collapse like a big tent collapse like a flag thrown down mm-hmm. and like a flag thrown down is a cool kind of image which makes it seem like what happens when you lose a war your flag is dropped Ooh, right yeah, and then yeah. then the megatherian appears i don't know i mean so it's within all this chaos there are what seem kind of like maybe ominous signs in some way or another right yeah and uh bald anders is gone the tent is gone but here comes Dr. Talos, apparently looking for them, and he hurries them along, quote, down twisted walks, past balustrades and waterfalls and grottos filled with raw topazes and flowering moss to a bowl of clipped lawn. A grotto filled with raw topaz. That would be, yeah, just gemstones, right? Topazes. Yeah, and raw would mean uncut, I think. Yeah. Unless there's some other hidden significance to Topaz. I don't know of anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jim's. Uh, Baldanders is there. He sees now putting up the stage with quote, a dozen white deer watching him do it. It's, it's a quote, much more elaborate than the one that they used in Nessus a bit more than a week ago. Severian pitches in. Uh, It seems to Severian that the house absolute servants had brought some supplies to the performers to improve their props. So they have wood and nails, tools and paint and lots and lots of cloth. And I truly don't know what to make of those dozen white deer. Like that's just an odd. Well, I mean, there's the, I guess, you know, it's, it's just a, it's more of the scene setting, right? Of just one more crazy thing because the deer are out here. They don't fear people clearly. And they're just watching you know, the interesting sights, yeah. a giant man setting up a stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because they had so many supplies, it waked, quote, the doctors bent toward the grandiose. He's going all out. He's uh, sometimes helping the two of them and then expanding the script of the play back and forth. And Severian is not really necessary, it seems. Baldander moves slowly and steadily when doing the hard work. He drives five-inch nails with one or two hits of his hammer. He cuts thick timber with a couple hits of the axe. They have solar panels, quote, black plates that drink the sun, that I suppose power the lights and the props when they put the play on at night. And they power the projectors that generate the backdrops. And the projectors are only 100% effective in total darkness. So they have to paint the backdrops to improve their effect otherwise. So, you know, they they run the projectors now as they paint the backdrops. And luckily, Dorcas is a, just a really skilled painter for some reason. So Talos is the playwright. Baldander's the carpenters. Dorcas is the scenery artist. Severian and Jolenta are kind of useless mm-hmm. yeah and severian doesn't know what to do and jolenta doesn't uh do anything on principle i guess yeah and he even specifically says like jolenta and i were of less value which yeah. is kind of a cool thing to flag the two of them because everything else is about what's going to happen to them so right. uh, there's it's just a cool moment where it's like neither one of them has sort of day-to-day practical use but they both 
obviously, I mean, she represents like total desire and Severian is representing to other people, at least, I mean, in this moment, like, you know, death or destiny mm-hmm. or something like that. But none of these things like have anything to do with sort of day to day working. It's a, it, but it's a it's a credible setup, right? Yeah. Because oh yeah. Yeah. Now we've explained why we have Jalenta and Severian at ends hanging out when there's oh, yeah. really not much expectation that Jalenta and Severian would ever hang out. Yeah, it is a nice sort of plot way to to separate them and get them isolated a little bit. Right. Yeah. So Severian goes on to describe sort of why Jalenta isn't really. Useful, useful. For this, right? Yeah. So she says, those long legs, so slender below the knees, so rounded to bursting above them, were inadequate to bear much weight beyond that of her own body. Her jutting breasts were in constant danger of having their nipples crushed between lumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or smeared with paint. Nor had she any of that spirit that animates the members of a group forwarding the group's purpose. Dorcas had said that she had been alone the night before, and perhaps she had been more nearly correct than I supposed. But Jalinta was more solitary still. Dorcas and I had each other. Baldanders and the Doctor, their crooked friendship, and we came together in performance of the play. Jalinta had only herself, the incessant performance whose sole goal for her was to garner admiration. Yeah, so both of them feel like they have no real purpose, and Jalinta gives Severian the signal yeah (laughs) but it's also kind of like they're neither one of them is useful but then jalenta is kind of further isolated right because he's he still has dorcas but from another perspective you know she's this beautiful thing to be looked at but no one seems to really relate to her yeah but she's isolated by design and by intent and by choice there's no way given what she wants out of every moment and every encounter for her to be part of a team. Right. And there's, that's really, I think what so much of the rest of this chapter is kind of spelling out, like the things that she wants, the kinds of admiration she wants um, is a a flawed kind. That's not Mm -hmm. ever going to be able to be satisfied basically. Yeah. And it's impractical. Yeah. And it's tragic. Mm. Maybe not hubris, Greek kind of tragic with the, you know, nobility at the core. <laughs> Maybe right. it's just bad, but, but it's, it's very sad. So, but yeah, uh, he says, she touched my arm and without speaking, rolled enormous emerald eyes to indicate the edge of our natural amphitheater, where a grove of chestnuts lifted white candles among their pale leaves. I saw that none of the others were looking at us and nodded. Yeah. Oh, so she has emerald eyes, right? Green yep. eyes. Uh, and we're going to eventually get to issues of consent in this chapter. Yep. And I acknowledge that, you know, initial approval is not definitive of ultimate consent. However, it is not entirely unnotable that Jalinta has initiated this co- yep. counter on her own. And I think it's self-evident that she's initiating for the purposes of being alone with Severian and convincing him to have sex with her. And we can debate where this goes, but... I think we can agree that Jalinta starts out in charge of this encounter at this moment, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Also, a grove of chestnuts. In Michael Andre Drisi's chapter guide for the Book of the New Sun, he cites this very cleverly to George Orwell's novel 1984, that it's a symbol of betrayal. Uh, the, the little rhyme, under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you and you sold me. There they lie and here lie we under the spreading chestnut tree. Mm, that's cool. That's yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. And then the question is, who's getting betrayed here, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. There's yeah. lots of betrayal in all kinds of directions <laughs> going on. So, 
Yeah. And if this illusion was intended, and I think it is compelling that it is, then Wolf, the author, is quite aware that Severian is also at least in part one of the people doing the betrayal. Mm -hmm. That that's part of the narrative. He, he is the, a bad guy here, right? Yeah. Well, he, and, his consent here is consent to Jorkists to yeah. Jolenta, but then of course it also, you know, is gonna of course gonna hurt Dorcas. Exactly. And also, as Mantis notes in his chapter guide, Talos has complimented Severian because he preferred Dorcas. And so Talos would be very disappointed in Severian right now. Yeah. Interesting. An added betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> A smaller one. You've yeah. disappointed Talos. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, after Dorcas, Jalenta walking beside me seemed nearly as tall as Thecla, though she took small steps instead of Thecla's swinging strides. She was a head taller than Dorcas, at least. Her coiffure made her seem taller still, and she wore boots with high riding heels. So this seems to suggest that Jalenta, with her leggy extensions, maybe her high hair, high heels, she's ultimately at least as tall as Severian. And is, of course, distinguishing the difference between teeny Dorcas and big Barda Jalenta. But yeah. I, I don't think he compared Jalenta to Thecla unless she was at least as tall as he was. Yeah, it's... It, the way he phrases it, right? The Jalenta walking beside me seemed nearly as tall as Thecla, yeah. right? And which right. the thing about Jalenta is that everything about her is making you think of her and perceive her as desirable. Something she's not, yeah. And which may not, yeah, which is kind of a different thing that, that and it's really kind of cool the way that Wolf talks about this and how, what Talus does to her is not just cosmetic surgery, that there's all yeah. kinds of stuff that make her seem desirable to you yeah. but that's different from being desirable in a weird yeah. way so yeah because there's there's possibly hypnosis going on here there's her confidence there's her attitude that they talk about all of that is kind of in there i'm sure there's some kind of vancian technology kind of alluded to there but thematically what it's doing is saying yeah that it's it's what you what really happens is jolenta becomes like what you can project your desires mm -hmm. into. Yeah. yes yeah yeah and she's hobbling as they walk because yes. her body is simply ungainly when mobile, she only looks proper when posing or reclining. Severian also says that she has perfect teeth when she smiles. And <laughs> I imagine that they don't even have a, you know, an uncanny valley feel to them like the veneers <laughs> typically do. And Jolita says, I want to see it. The only, it's the only chance I shall ever have. And Severian says, that was a palpable lie. <laughs> but he <laughs> responds as though he totally believes, you know, he says, the opportunity is symmetric. Today and only today, the House Absolute will have the opportunity to see you. So, yeah, based on this statement by Severian, I surmise that what she's saying is, I want to see the House Absolute grounds. It's the only chance I'll have to see it. But we'll see that she actually does not expect it's going to be the only chance she's going to have to see it. She expects to be discovered as yep. a, as an actress right yep. and uh, so she'll have lots of time to see it that's not the point and so varian responds as we see with flattery and i think the reader is supposed to read between the lines that Severian and jalenta are engaged in a kind of ritual seduction here both knowing what the other is saying is untrue both knowing the, the other knows that it's false both falling into the ritual in order to move things along as someone who considers himself, you know, marginally on the neuroatypical spectrum, I think encounters like this is why Wolf attracts more neuroatypical people than you'd think. It's like a social puzzle that you can solve. And when you've solved it, you feel like you understand more about the world. Hmm. That's interesting. I, yeah, I see that. Yeah. I definitely see yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's also why wolf can be difficult for all people, because so often, as I've said recently, perhaps most of the time, Wolf's text is ironic. What is literally being said on the page is the opposite of the meaning of the text or very different from the meaning of the text as a communication between the author and the reader. And that's what's happening here. Jolinta is saying, I want to go someplace private with you. And Severian is saying, you are desirable. And so I want to do that also. What they're literally saying to each other is almost irrelevant. The point is to say it and the other person will get the message. I remember in the movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, uh, where Seth Rogen advises Steve Carell that the secret to talking to women is to say anything as if it's dirty. And, he says, and so he says, I need to put my bike in your trunk. And it works, you know, same principle. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so when Severian says, today and only today, the House Absolute has the opportunity to see you, Jalinta nods like, yeah, that's so true. Good point, Severian. So wise. <laughs> so What's cool about that that whole thing, though, and what makes it problematic, of course, is that this is all just through Severian's eyes, right? And yeah. so it makes total sense that that's what Severian sees this as. And I think if you really are pushing, um, like if, if you come to this chapter and you want to find every way that you can say that Severian is just being horrible here, then you could say, like, that's his defense that's like, his that's a total right? rationalization for why he didn't have to take what she said literally exactly um, yeah so so it's kind of it's really cool because i think you're right it on the one hand it is totally what's going on on the other hand though we do see all of this only through Severian's perspective, exactly. just like everything else in the book of course yes, but exactly. it makes all those things even harder yeah, yeah. since we're going to have a discussion about consent, what actually was meant by Jalenta when she said matters a great deal mm -hmm. right? oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so Jolinta also says that in order to see the house absolute grounds, she needs someone to scare off the show people who would surround her every time she left the tent by herself. She says that Severian can do that. And when Severian wasn't around, she only had Dorcas and no one's afraid of Dorcas. <laughs> she asks Severian to carry his sword over his shoulder, which he does. And she says, if I don't smile, make them leave. Understand? <laughs> and uh, this kind of suggests that Jolinta is still entertaining the possibility that someone will walk up to them that she would prefer to talk to rather than Severian. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, yeah. there's another interpretation. I don't believe it. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'll be honest, but I can see someone making that argument. Yeah. It's also a point where what she's doing is she's immediately pointing out, here's why you are useful to me, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's not like, Hey, come with me. You'd be great company. It's more like, no, you would be perfect for this situation in which I won't be bothered. You, I need you for my bouncer. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Anyway, I you know I we have to give that interpretation its due. I, yeah. I don't remember anyone making it, but it does seem valid on its face. So Severian describes where they are. It says grass much longer than that in the natural amphitheater, but softer than fern grew among the chestnuts. The paths the path was of quartz pebbles shot with gold. Ooh, pretty. Yeah, topaz and quartz. And yeah. yeah. Now Jalinta says, "Quote: If only the autarch saw me, he would desire me." Do you think he'll come to our play? And Severian reminds her that the autarch is a eunuch. He says, <laughs> I have heard that he has little use for women, however beautiful, save as advisors, spies, and shield mates. Apparently, she's got a smile pasted on her face at all times. Yeah. And she stops smiling now and stops walking and said, that's just it. Don't you see? I can make anyone desire me. And so the one autarch whose dreams are our reality, whose memories are our history, will desire me too. 
unmanned or not. Hmm. And then she says that Severian's desire for her is not like the desire he has for other women, even though he thinks it is. Now, that's a very cocky idea. She right. really believes she has special powers beyond her mere appearance right. to make people desire her. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that is true, but it may not be true in the way that she means it. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't know, though. Like, I really do wonder if Jalenta, like the first time I read this, first couple times, I read this as Jalenta being very superficial. And I mean, the reason why Severian kind of gets mad at her is because he sees her as being sort of superficial and manipulative. And he's like, ah, it's part of the reason why, you know, I hate just, her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder though, like the more I read this, the more I'm like, what she's saying can have multiple things. Like it might not just be pure arrogance. It might be the fact that she actually does kind of understand what's happening to her and how she's been created. And that what she does is she has a certain kind of now desirable quality that may not really be about her, but that, it, like I said, other people see in her something that they want, like that, mm-hmm. that they want it. Like, cause the, the fact that they don't see all how uncomfortable she is and they don't see how, you know, hard it is for her just to walk. They see whatever it is they think is desirable about her. And so she may know, you know, this is what I've got and I can, I can use it. Um, and so she's may well be right about Severian. Um, it just may not take the form that she wants it to. Um, but in a sense, even what does happen by the end of this is still kind of, you know, it, it is still a version of she makes Severian desire her in one way or another so much that he, he, he loses any kind of control or whatever. Um, it doesn't work the way that is necessarily in her favor, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's she's still well not ultimately but it's it's working along it's doing what she wanted to do until it doesn't yeah so i think she is in some way that like when she says that it's not simple arrogance that it it actually there is some truth that i think she's got to recognize about this like i think she's starting to feel like okay to be desirable like this is more complicated than just being pretty well you know i you saying that now makes me wonder yeah, okay. So the Kumeyan is going to say, well, look, she's had modifications to her body. She has seems to have had a, a hypnotic application to her. So mm-hmm. she thinks she's beautiful. She thinks she has power. So that is alluring in itself. But maybe there is something extra, something kind of like the Undyne when this, later in this book, with that when Severian encounters her, that is actually making him see what he desires in her and that if that if it's true that would explain something that i see late in this chapter and we'll have to talk about that because i was kind of wondering about that one so after she makes this point that she can seems to consider very profound she resumes hobbling along but this time quote invigorated for the moment by her own argument (laughs) yeah she says but i make every man stiffen and every woman itch Women who've never loved women wish to love me. Did you know that? The same ones come to our performances again and again and send me their food and their flowers, scarfs, shawls, and embroidered kerchiefs with, oh, such sisterly, motherly notes. They're going to protect me, protect me from my physician, from his giant, from their husbands and sons and neighbors. And the men, Baldanders has to throw them in the river. (laughs) And uh, she's saying... Again, that the desire for her is special, and that's got to come into account later 
when uh, in this chapter when we talk about consent for, because you know in this case who is having their consent assaulted Jalenta mm -hmm. or her suitors but there it's it's kind of cool because the way like I think when I've read this before I think of her saying you know women desire me I think I just assumed she meant oh yeah they they feel sexual desire for her like they never have before but if I take that literally that it's filled with like sisterly and motherly thing there may be some erotic component to it but it may also be true that they're like pheromones or something maybe she has yeah. some power or... yeah yeah but if it is the kind of thing about seeing something that you that you see what you want to then you know there is something about like a mother wanting to see her as a daughter in need of protecting which is going to make me a wonderful mother of a beautiful <laughs> thing or a sister yeah, being yeah. like i will protect i'll be the strong one to my beautiful weak sister or something right. like that, um, which is cool because it's so much, I think, of the way that that Jalenta gets talked about is it's simple kind of like, oh, yeah, she's a sex object. And I think that's right. But it's also there's this whole other thing about she's able to make people desire her in in any way that they really want to. Deliberately, um, deliberately. Yeah, yeah. By, I mean, that's the point. She says that she believes she has this power to make any man or woman desire her. Yeah. Women who've never desired a woman in their lives will desire her. And she believes that she is a physical love potion. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Severian asks if she's too hobbled to walk. And she says, my thighs are chafed and it hurts to walk. I have an ungent for them that helps a bit, and a man brought a genet for me to ride, but I don't know where it's pastured now. I'm really only comfortable when I can keep my legs apart. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and see, and I don't I... know, is that supposed <laughs> to be said, like, is she supposed to be saying that with a smirk? You know, like, I, I feel like everything else they're saying here is either her kind of bragging or you know, double entendre or something. I feel like that part she has yeah. to be saying with a smirk. Well, it could be, you know, it could be literally true, and you know yeah. also conveniently true so yeah, yeah. You know. uh, an ungent uh, is a healing or soothing salve an ointment for all i know it's a tube of diaper rash cream. Rash, yeah <laughs> exactly and then a genet is just is that just like a one person so like a mule or something mule, like that, or, okay yeah and uh see uh severian offers to carry her and she says we'd both enjoy that wouldn't we so she's she is she's kind of coming on to him at this point and perhaps that's what the the spreading her legs thing had to do with as mm -hmm. well. She, she's, you know, she's back to these sly insinuations, yeah. but she declines because it wouldn't look dignified as opposed yeah. to limping along like a cripple. And uh, she says, I won't walk far. In fact, no matter what happens, which is to say, I think that she won't walk far because she can't. And she notes that there's no quote, important people out on the grounds. Anyway, there's some support for the theory that, you know, she really, doesn't intend to have sex with the Severian. She says, maybe the important folks are sleeping late this morning, so they'll be able to stay up for the theasis. And she says that she'll have to get four more hours of sleep at least before she goes on stage tonight. Since she didn't get up early, I, I suppose that this is a requirement for her physical accoutrements. Yeah. And I wonder too, thinking about like who she's going to see here. Yeah. I, I wonder this time really is like, is she thinking both either I can have Severian or maybe I'll make me someone else out there like even the way she said the thing about like if i stop smiling then you're supposed to scare those people away but then not long after that they're like she's always smiling <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know she always wants yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know but yeah so uh Severian says i heard the sound of water sliding over stones and having no better goal to seek made for it we passed through a hawthorn hedge whose spotted white blossoms seemed from a distance to present an insurmountable barrier 
and saw a river hardly wider than a street on which swans sailed like sculptures of ice. There was a pavilion there, and beside it three boats, each shaped like the wide flower of the Nenufar. Yeah, I can totally imagine those boats. Uh, you know, like little little floating uh, water lilies or something sitting on the mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And uh, later, Severian's going to explain that the boats look like, that they look circular, but that there's a keel, a pointed bow that's just under the water. So they can be steered with an oar. And of course, these are nenuphars, right? The, the, yeah. the same, I guess these guys are not purple. Um, I, I think of them, but I think of these as white just because of the swans. Yeah, I and think. it's, uh, they're, they're, remember they're, the nenuphars represent death. And so he and yep. Agilenta are floating around in these nenuphars. In a big thing of death, yeah. So... And he says, their interiors were lined with the thickest silk brocade. And when I stepped into one, I found that they exuded the odor of spices. Mm. <laughs> yeah, this is cool. Pleasure yeah. palace, right? Yeah, like yeah this very is, much. Uh, yeah. And it's Someone has to keep those going all the time, right? You know, every time yeah. it rains, you have to reapply all of the, the ointments and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and the fact that you're going to be in like uh, floating around on a river, on a flower that's scented and things like that. And it's all padded and cushioned right. everywhere. Um, you know, this is the, the love boat ride. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is what this is supposed to be. So, yeah. 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 It, it's like uh, taking your date on a first date and it, showing her off your perfectly round bed or something. It's a pretty <laughs> obvious what the point is. <laughs> And Jolinta thinks that these are just great. And she says, they won't mind if we take one, will they? Actually, she says it would be better if they were arrested for stealing the boats, because if they are, then she'll be brought before someone important, just like in the play. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll see me and he'll never let me leave. And when he does that, you know, she'll, quote, make Dr. Talos stay with her. And Severian can stay with her, too, if he wants. You know, um, Helen Mirren said that when she was, you know, a young woman just starting out an actress she would go to the park and just hang out hoping to be discovered so it's <laughs> very much i think what uh Gillette is she's always looking for an opportunity to be discovered by an important person yeah uh let's see and here's something like i said she's she's going to be on stage and nothing like that will happen she is in some degree delusional regarding how others see her just like any pretty young aspiring actress or chisel-jawed actor. And I think that's partly kind of what's been talked about here is that, you know, if what's mostly desirable about her is that people project onto her what they think is desirable, then unfortunately it's not going to get her very far. Yeah, because exactly. Once, I mean, nobody... Once they get what they want, yeah. then nobody cares about her. Really. Yeah, no one's begging her to stay behind, right? She can't yeah. go back to the house absolute. No one has asked her to stay. And, yeah. uh, but, and, and even, and Severian himself says, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to continue my journey North. Mm -hmm. And so he puts her in the boat and he puts her arm about her waist, which is just as slender as Dorcas is, even though everything else, I guess, is more curvy. And then she lays down on the cushions where quote, the uplifted petals gave her perfect complexion shade. Right. Which means then of course that the petals are up. Yeah. So that you're concealed, right? So, right. you know, it's not that they're just shaped like a flower and people can see. But once you're lying down in the boat, nobody can see what's going on, which is, again, yeah. that point I think about what these are really for. Yeah. But, and if you uh, believe that light on the face is a sign of someone is a relative of Severian's, well, uh, she's in the shade. So uh, maybe uh, the shade signals that she's not a relative. And Severian does, however, compare this moment to a specific moment with Asia, and as Severian tends to do, he spends some time and some ink comparing Jolinta 
and Agia. It made me think of Agia, laughing in the sun as we descended the Adamnian steps and boasting of the wide-brimmed hat she would wear next year. Agia had no feature that was not inferior to Jalenta's. She'd been hardly taller than Dorcas, with hips overwide and breasts that would have seemed meager beside Jalenta's overflowing plenitude. Hmm. And he seems to be saying that Asia is, had kind of a big booty. <laughs> so, but it might suggest, as with that conversation she and Severian had in the end of Lost Loves, that she has had a child. Mm -hmm. Right. And it also is just like she has her own personality, right? Like she has her own shape <laughs> that, that is not just what what people think is desirable. Right. So, yeah. So and then he says, Asia's long brown eyes and high cheekbones were more expressive of shrewdness and determination than passion and surrender. Well, which I suppose um, Jalinta's eyes, I suppose, are supposed to suggest passion and surrender. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is a, I mean, it's not totally weird, but I mean, it's like from from a sort of traditional sort of male gaze perspective, right? That get you want to feel passionate, but you also want want the thing you want to surrender to you. But it's different with Ajia because she actually has her own desires. Like mm -hmm. all we know that that Jalenta wants is to be desired. But what she wants beyond that, we don't really know. Yeah. Whereas I think the point of Aji is she's got her own plans. Yeah. And once that, again, that's what <laughs> you could describe that as shrewdness, but you can also describe that as, you know, she she has her own sort of more full character. Right. And remember, you know, those long brown eyes and high cheekbones. I uh, I once postulated, well, maybe that means that she looks Asian, but I now think remember that Aja has more of a native South American look to her than an Asian one. So, mm -hmm. and I think that 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 probably fits more too with the whatever spell she casts or mm -hmm. little icon she leaves or something. Yeah, that it, I think she's it makes more sense. With so, her many things, so many things. So many things. Her, um, you know, her comfortableness with nakedness. Her uh, the fact that she runs around barefoot all the time. Yeah. Yep. He keeps going. Yet Asia had engendered a healthy rut in me. <laughs> yeah, her laughter. Wait, wait, I mean, yeah, he's like, but she, she got me horny because yeah. she was like that, um, and he was attracted to her, but in a different way. He was attracted to her because of her, I don't know, her aliveness or yeah, yeah. He says her laughter her. Yeah. when it came was often tinged with spite, but it was also real, real laughter, laughter. Yeah. yeah, and she had sweated with her heat. Yeah. At conversely, Jalenta leaves him cold, right? Yeah. Jalenta's desire was no more than the desire to be desired, so that I wished not to comfort her loneliness as I had wished to comfort Valeria's. Again, at last, he mentions Valeria, but not exactly languishing on her beauty at this point, just acknowledging her existence. Yeah. And also saying she's lonely, right? Yeah. So there is some loneliness, but a different kind of loneliness, right? Jalenta's loneliness is much more of a desperate kind of sort of clutching loneliness, um, whereas Valeria is lonely, but apparently still very much her own person or something. Right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he keeps going. He says, not to comfort her loneliness as I'd wish to comfort Valeria's, nor to find expression for an aching love like the love I had felt for Thecla, nor to protect her as I wish to protect Dorcas, but to shame and punish her, <laughs> to destroy her self-possession, to fill her eyes with tears and tear her hair as one burns the hair of corpses to torment the ghosts that have fled them. <laughs> she had boasted that she made tribadists, 
tribatists, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, of women. How often do you get to use that word, really? It's not like uh, you're going to exactly. go off and hang out with your wife and say, and let me tell you about the tribatists. <laughs> yeah, so, so well, he says, she had boasted that she had made tribatists of women. She came near to making an algophilist of me. Yeah, the reference to burning hair, for starters, uh, of the corpses to torment their spirits. I've never heard of that. I can't find a reference to it. If anyone knows something, let me know. Uh, maybe that's something they do at the tower. Mm -hmm. A tribatist is one who engages in tribbing, and that's scissoring, a sexual act, I'm told, that les lesbians do. So a tribatist is a lesbian. And an algophilist is, quote, one who takes a morbid pleasure in the contemplation of mental or physical pain in others or himself. I guess in this case, a sadist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the section where Severian just comes right out and says, you know, okay, here's how I felt about Jolenta, mm -hmm. right? And and sort of says, here's what I was coming to. But what I, and we'll, we're going to talk a lot about this, but what's interesting to me is how he gets to that point from saying that what upset him most about Jolenta was that she desired to be desired. And that was it. Yeah, she doesn't and want, she doesn't want to be loved. She doesn't want to be loved. She doesn't want to make love. She doesn't want love made to her. All she wants is to be desired. It's purely yeah. one way. Yeah. So one way I think you can talk about this is that that sort of selfish and empty desire, it kind of backfires on you. That, mm -hmm. that oddly enough, she does make Severian desire her, but she doesn't make him desire her in any sort of long-lasting way, right? It's, right? it's a desire to just punish that kind of emptiness or selfishness. Yeah, it's the kind, and it's the kind of desire she doesn't that she misinterprets. She thinks, oh, mm -hmm. I can make someone anyone desire me, and maybe it's true, but she can't make you want her to be around all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on that on that surface, right? right? Once that's gone, then. There's nothing else. That's why he keeps saying, you know, yeah, Valeria and Agia were maybe not as typically attractive or or sort of, sh they, they weren't as peacocky, <laughs> right? Like they weren't showing off the, the crazy plumes everywhere, um, but they made you want to be with them. They wanted, yeah. they made you be, yeah. Be right. More into A healthy rut, as they say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even, even that. <laughs> We'll, we'll have more. We, yeah. We'll come back. Yeah, we'll come back. Right. We should, yeah. And Jolinta says, this is my last performance. I know. I feel it. And, you know, that's actually true. The audience is sure to hold someone. And she yawns and stretched. And it appeared so certain her straining bodice would be unable to contain her that I averted my eyes. And when I looked again, she was sleeping. Like I said, yeah, she's. This is going to be your last performance. Yeah, for sure. And she's convinced the House Absolute will keep someone back from the troop. She's expecting to be discovered, but now she's fallen asleep. And maybe this is a physical result of her modifications. She's sleeping very soundly, though. Comatose, it seems. Uh, maybe a lot of sleep is required for those modifications. Maybe, I don't know. But maybe. It, maybe it's part of the seduction. We'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. Yeah, it's... Also cool that it's a moment where she's like, I'm on the cusp of getting what I think I want, right? And instead of that really invigorating her, she just kind of falls. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is weird, which yeah. is not what you'd expect. You'd think like, oh, I should be getting ready. This is my going to be my swan song and, and I should do all this. But there's there's a kind of 
total passivity to it. Yeah. That seems to take over. Yeah. So Severian talks about what happens. He says, a slender oar trailed behind the boat. In the center of the river, the current ran strongly enough that I needed only to steer our slow progress along a series of gracefully sweeping meanders. Just as the hooded servant and I had passed unseen through suites and alcoves and arcades when he had escorted me along the hidden ways of the second house, so now the sleeping Jalinta and I passed without noise or effort, almost completely unobserved, through leagues of garden. Ah, that hood servant, remember, I think was Father Aneri? We we think so. At yeah. Least, yes. <laughs> he says, couples lay on the soft grass beneath the trees and in the more refined comfort of summer houses and seem to think our craft hardly more than a decoration sent idly downstream for their delectation. Or if they saw my head above the curved petals, assumed us intent on our own affairs. Lone philosophers meditated on rustic seats and parties, not invariably erotic. <laughs> that is, not all the parties were orgies, <laughs> to be yeah. fair. I mean, maybe most or all the parties yeah. were parties of yeah. two. Yeah. So not necessarily an orgy. <laughs> but yes. So invariably erotic, parties proceeded undisturbed in clerestories and arboreums. Yeah, clerestories and arboreums. Uh, these seem to be two words that Wolf included that mean things that are otherwise not things in our world. Uh, a clerestory is, well, it's another word for it is clear story. It's the upper part of a building or church with windows that let the light into the auditorium below. And in this weird setting, you know, maybe it's a kind of gazebo that has solid private walls and is open above and has a second story of stained glass. Oh. Yeah. Once I looked it up, that was kind of what I thought, like maybe some kind of open air room mm -hmm. or something. I don't know. Yeah. And an arboreum. There's no definition of an arboreum in Lexicon Earthus. It doesn't seem to be an actual noun. Uh, maybe it's a typo in Wolf's manuscript. Maybe he meant arboretum, a uh, tree museum. But what would be the fun in that? An arboreum is uh, Latin, I think, for tree-like. So maybe an arboreum is a gazebo whose sides mm -hmm. were made of manicured trees to create yeah. a little room inside. Yeah? That's what it, just like the green room. I think just another, like another green room, a room made out of green stuff. Yeah. <laughs> trees. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my guesses. So, so Severian is rowing the Ninafar boat while Jalinta snoozes. He says, eventually I came to resent Jalinta's sleep. I think the idea is Severian says, what the heck? We were supposed to come out here and have sex and she's sleeping the day away and I'm just having to row this boat. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think it's also going back to him realizing why he was so upset like you know that he resented her sleep i think not just because he was like i thought we were gonna have sex although i that's probably part of it but i think it's also that he resented her it sounds weird but i feel like he he resented her cluelessness a little bit or at least her not understanding what she was actually doing like she seemed so manipulative when in fact she was just not really ever going to get what she wanted and she's kind of this you know empty almost pathetic kind of desire that that she keeps talking about i feel like there's a lot of that connected to well it. he feels hostile to her too and so the yeah. idea that she's sitting there she's laying there enjoying herself while he's doing all the work and being taken advantage of you know i guess there's some resentment there yeah and i think that goes back to the being used like that's mm -hmm. the one thing too is that the way that she looks at all these things she's never she's never really partnering with anyone she's just 
it's almost like people use her for their desire and then she uses them mm-hmm. afterwards, but there's and no and their desire is what she's using them for. Yeah. It's yeah. Like and, a, but there's like a, like a vampire who feeds on desirable uh, emotions toward her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of it. So, so it's all that kind of stuff is part of it. Like, I don't, I don't think it's just that he was like, Hey, I'm still horny. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that, that it's all that other stuff too. Yeah. And speaking of why did we come here today? Uh, why don't we get on with it? <laughs> he says, I abandoned the oar and knelt beside her on the cushions. There was a purity in her sleeping face, however artificial, that I had never observed when she was awake. I kissed her and her large eyes, hardly open, seemed almost Agia's long eyes as her red-gold hair appeared almost brown. I loosened her clothing. She seemed half-drugged, whether by some soporific in the heaped cushions or merely by the fatigue induced by our walk in the open and the burden of so great a quantity of voluptuous flesh. I freed her breasts, each nearly as large as my own head, and those wide thighs which seemed to hold a new hatched chick between them. Uh, soporific is, of course, a drug to induce sleeping. And so that's it. That In the next chapter, Severian's going to say that he did not just have sex with her once he poured out his manhood again and again and you know we'll save his justifications or whatever they are for later this is actually far more tame than i remembered it when i came back to this chapter on my second read i was really troubled by this scene for more than merely the literal scene itself my question about this was also why mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about Severian having sex or wanting to have sex with every woman he meets. Okay, fair. But the thing is that every other sexual encounter did not seem to be so much of a left turn into a cul-de-sac as this one. His relationship with Thecla advances the plot. It expresses a complicated relationship between a torturer and his client, and it presents an examples of the axiom that Severian received from Dorcas, that all men are torturers and that we are destroyers of what we love. Dorcas mm-hmm. is the romantic MacGuffin. For Severian, from the time he meets her uh, until she, you know, leaves him in Thrax, Syriaca gives us a huge amount of backstory, and mm-hmm. Daria demonstrates, you know, at least that the sexual mores of uh, the Artarch's army is not ours, and that, and that there's a scary play side to an erotic relationship, and you don't have to believe any of that is right to accept that that is what happens in this story, but here. What is the point? What do we get out of this beyond Severian being selfish, a selfish betrayal of Dorcas and a selfish use of a woman that he records that he essentially loathes? It's hard to be sure that Severian himself knows what's going on. Yeah. And then Severian says she seems drugged. He never bothers to investigate how. Maybe there were drugs in the cushions, he suggests. Uh, It seems like a weird thing to do. Maybe she was really tired from walking. I think that since these are things Severian proposes, they are positively not what is going on. Here's what I propose. And I don't know for sure what Wolf is getting at, but I think it might be part of what he's getting at. For the next six chapters, Severian is going to spend a lot of time mulling over the meaning of desire. He's going to argue that Jalinta does not want to be loved, nor to love. She desires no one except perhaps Talos, and she doesn't want to make love to anyone. And all she wants is to be desired, and she wants people to want to have sex with her and occasionally prove it by having sex with her. 
I think Wolf is trying to have his characters demonstrate something about desire. And I think that from the first time Severian encounters her in Shadow as Chalenta, he described her as something more fitting for a picture. And he's saying that she's a sitterful come to life, but come to life in only a very rarefied sense. She's an epitome of desire, a desirable object. And, and there's love and there's desire and then there's porn, an act that is entirely transactional and degraded even from prostitution that is, you know, entirely non-personal, but still you're there. And Severian doesn't like her. He's annoyed by her. And then he has sex with her. And Jolenta gets the thing she wanted because when Jolenta becomes inert, an object, that's when she's irresistible. And that is all metaphorical. And Greg, you know how I hate purely metaphorical <laughs> explanations in this book. I was going to say, that's, you're, you're taking that, my direction with this. <laughs> yeah, and that's, but that's mostly what I've got. And furthermore, let's assume I'm right. Wolf is playing with fire here, and I think he got burned. Gene Wolf needed an editor to send this back to him for a second pass. It needed more work. And due to the nature of this particular text, I'm not sure exactly what reshaping it needed. I only know that it needed it. And Wolf needed to be far more clear what he's getting at in this chapter, or he needed to leave it out. We need more setup to Jalinta as a femme fatale, or we need more comeuppance for Severian. That the reader needed more handholding on character motivations than Wolf offered. And I, I'm saying this scene and what went on afterwards needed more baking. I don't think I, I need to prove that this scene hounded Wolf. Millennials and Gen Zs are often uh, assumed that the 80s were some wild world where the mores were distinctly different, but that's not actually true. The 80s were a time when the term politically incorrect became a term that people had heard of besides communist academics. I believe <laughs> Wolf was questioned about this scene over and over at conventions. And you know why I think that? Because in Earth of the New Sun, Severian does something that I don't think any other Wolf character has ever done before or after. He responded to the critics. He says, as I contemplated them, and the few that came before them, I seemed to me that my acts towards women had depended not upon my will, but upon their attitude toward me. I had been brutal enough with the Kaibet Thecla of the House Azure, and then as mild and clumsy as any untouched boy with the real Thecla in her cell. Fevered at first with Dorcas, quick and clumsy with Jolenta, whom I might have been said to have raped, although I believe then and believe still that she wished it, of Valeria, I have said too much already. So I do think Wolf's intent is that all Severian's actions are merely a reflection of the desires of the female characters he encounters. And I think it's evident in this case when Severian returns, and perhaps that in itself is Wolf's character development of Severian. When it comes toward women, when it comes to life, he acts with women as they would want him to. He doesn't act with a plan. He doesn't take. He only receives, regardless of whether it is a gift that would be wise for him to take. Hmm. That's what I got. So I I think that's, first of all, that's that's absolutely consistent with that passage in Earth, right? Like mm -hmm. the, when he puts that in there. Um, the next question I think for me is, 
does that really account for what happens with the other characters? Because um, I can see it with Thecla. I can see it in some sense with Agia. With Dorcas, it's harder, I feel mm-hmm. like, because Dorcas is, um, you know, he certainly doesn't act towards her as she would want here, right? Like with what he's doing. Well, that, that's so, true, but, but she's, that's not also, here. she's not here. <laughs> she's not here, right, yeah. yeah. But yeah, and I'm also trying to figure out, okay, well, why why do that? Why would why would it be important for Severian to yeah. just kind of be the mirror or something? And, and I mean, maybe there's some, you could come up with some reason like, well, if he's supposed to be the epitome of humanity, then maybe he's like Jolinta. Everybody sees in him or he's going to act how other human beings want him to act or something. And, you know, he's just a reflection of the people around him in society. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, I mean, but but so far, everything else that we've seen is that he's, he's always trying to figure out the world. And yeah, I mean, it's really, it would, it's actually a really cool idea. If that's what Wolf was actually thinking he was doing with Severian, that what he is, is he's always what the people around him want or need. And, and he'll be, he'll always be a kind of pure, justice like and if you if what you want for yourself is a horrible thing is is ultimately a horrible thing then he's going to do horrible stuff to you i mean that works intellectually and it's sort of like a big allegorical thing um Mm -hmm. i and actually i'm thinking allegorically it's kind of fascinating but i i don't know that that's really the case um because i i still am kind of stuck with yeah i don't really i keep coming up with possible explanations for why what are we supposed to learn about Severian doing this? Like, like why, why are we? Yeah. This, with why? Just the yeah. question you started, like, what, what is this supposed to to do? I mean, because it's, I, I feel like Wolf is so obviously flagged this as, you know, a problem, right? Like that, that what yeah. he's saying here, cause he specifically says, has Severian say, I just wanted to punish her. I just wanted to hurt her. Yeah. And um, then he has sex with her. Yeah. And yeah. and so it's not like he's trying to say, oh, this is just boys being boys, right? I mean, no, he's flat out saying Severian was pretty awful here. Um, I think he's also saying Jolenta is, is awful too. And I think that's where it gets problematic from the whole consent issue too, is mm-hmm. because I think there is something here of, of, Severian feeling justified at least in the point of not so far as how he acts but at least feeling justified in that the kind of desire to be desired that Jalenta has is a a horrible thing like I think Mm -hmm. he feels he does stand by that because he talks later on about how he only slowly starts to come to have pity for Jalenta right Right, yeah as she dies um but yeah, what what exactly is he doing in this chapter? And I just don't know. Like it it doesn't seem to me like one that really fits with the oh, Severian just wants to go have sex with all the women because <laughs> everything else about this chapter is taken very seriously as like, you know, like you said, we start to talk a lot about desire at this point. Um mm-hmm. and and Severian is doing a lot of thinking here about you know why the kind of desire that Jalenta has is not good and then to end with him feeling like he's got a punisher for being yeah. that's 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 not just you know 80s boy having sex with a lot <laughs> yeah, of people, yeah, right yeah, no. it's something else altogether um plus the fact that right after this you get the play like like mm-hmm. why is this the introduction to the play that's yeah, that's the weird much. thing too 
And I really don't know other than the one thing I feel like it, it, and now as I start to say this, I'm not so sure I believe it anymore, but I was wondering like, is this Severian having to do something very wrong and, and flawed before we get sort of the big story to understand like why he's gonna, how he fits into the larger tale? Um, and, and I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't have a good explanation for that. And I'm that I feel like before I had a, before I came back to think about it this time, I was more confident in being able, I'm going to put something together for this one. Mm-hmm. But now actually reading it again, I kind of feel like I do agree with you that like this, it wasn't really well baked. Like if this yeah. is supposed to have some kind of metaphorical or even allegorical meaning, it, it doesn't come across particularly. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. He, yeah, it's missed. It's yeah. It's the the noise surrounding it. The message is is, is totally lost yeah. because of the shocking and appallingness and senselessness of the scene itself. Yeah. One thing though. One thing, I think does matter when it comes to consent. And I, there was always this possibility, but something you said made me think that there is confirmation in this perspective that I've kind of toyed with for a long time. You said that Jolenta seems to have this power for people to project their desires onto her. Mm -hmm. And there's this scene in the boat where he starts drawing this connection between Jolenta and Agia. Jolenta and Agia. Jolenta and Agia. Oh, her her face doesn't look like her, but it it calls it to mind for no particular reason. Her her, her face actually became Agia's. Her hair actually became Agia's. Maybe she does have more of an actual physical power as a love potion to actually cause people to take whatever is in their, what would they would desire greatly and project it onto her. And that is so that she actually has an aphrodisiac power in that way, in which case, um, you know, on the question of consent, Sarian probably didn't have a lot of consent in that in that in that sense. Um, and then when she falls suddenly falls asleep, this is this is all part of it. She becomes inert. She becomes an object. She yeah, becomes literally an object. Yeah. A, literally an object where she lays still, and the, the the power of her you know whatever love potion or whether can take its effect and has its effect on Severian. Yeah. And which case leads to his straightforward betrayal of, uh, of Dorcas, which yeah. I mean, to be fair, he seems to have planned to do anyway. Yeah. One other thing I just noticed that when he does, when he does talk about wanting to punish her, I mean, as a torturer, that's the one time where he gets kind of emotionally involved in causing pain. Right. Yeah. Otherwise all this time that it happens when he kills and when he, even when he, you know, take beheads all the people in the on the the elephant. It, it's all very clinical and professional, but something about this moment actually makes him want to hurt. It's actually yeah, it breaks the it breaks the code of the guild. And I they... that's the first time I think that's happened, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's he certainly reacted violently before, but but this is the first time where he has those feelings, thinks about it for a while, and then acts on them. <laughs> you know, and it's <laughs> it's like that's that's different. But I hadn't thought of that before, and now I'm wondering if that. Yeah, why? Because the other thing about it is Jolenta has not stood out before. Like she's been a side, yeah. a, a, a kind of side, an interesting side piece to right. to all of the stuff that's going on here. But now she comes forward and she 
make Severian do something that is pretty extreme. So yeah, maybe she does. Yeah, and maybe that's the whole point of this scene is that we get to see the details of this creation that Talos has made out of some poor girl. Hmm. That could be, that could be. And now we're going to go see another one of Talos's creations here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Every bit no. is monstrous. Yeah. <laughs> But I do think, too, one thing I have seen people talk about this before that, that and, and say like very wide ranging things about how, you know, this is ah, this is how Severian feels about women. But it's it's very much not because he is yeah. constantly it's, here talking about how comparing her to different women and, and how yeah, other she's, women she's make him feel different. Right, yeah. yeah. So there's there's very much this sense. It's, it's more about I feel like really thinking about desire than about just gender. But yeah, I know as I feel bad because as I was finishing my notes for this one, I'm like, I don't have a conclusion. <laughs> I don't I don't have a way to wrap this up. But but like you said, I think maybe one thing I want to focus on then for the next few chapters, especially as we get more about Jalenta and she becomes that much more tragic figure. Um, I need to pay more attention to how Severian's acting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But yeah, but just in, in general too, the one if nothing else, to call attention to the fact that, you know, this is a bad, you know, Severian looks bad. Honestly, Wolf looks kind of bad here, even in, mm-hmm. in if it's half-baked. But one thing that's not happening is I don't think it's sort of superficially naive. Like, I don't think this is no. supposed to be Severian just being a, a doof. And, and yeah. I think he's, you know, I think he is getting caught up in something that he can't, that, that he needed yeah. more control or self-control. I think that's true. But even the way that he's talking about this, like there's, Severian is thinking through sort of why do I react so strongly to this? Why do I resent her? Why do I have all these strong feelings? And he's acting poorly anyway, but there's something else going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not even the end of the chapter. <laughs> no, no. That, yeah, let's go back and look at what happened when they returned. Yeah, so so he says, um, when we returned, everyone knew where we had been, though I doubt that Baldanders cared. Dorcas wept in private, vanishing for a time only to emerge with inflamed eyes and a heroine's smile different kind of smile than yeah than Jolent had dr Tallis, i think was simultaneously enraged and delighted <laughs> i received the impression which i hold to this day that he had never enjoyed Jolenta, and that it was only to him of all the men of earth that she would have given herself entirely willingly so yeah i see a place where wolf made a mistake i think let's talk about this paragraph dorcas is hurt she goes off alone to weep, returns, determined to demonstrate that what Severian did did not hurt or humiliate her at all. And Severian is going to imply that Jalinta had successfully seduced Dorcas as well yeah. during their week away from him. Uh, maybe that's true. Maybe she's accepted that, you know, it's only fair that there's no use getting disappointed. Severian was not stronger than her. Maybe she's glad at last, you know, they're both even. I, I don't know. And then there's Talos. He's annoyed that Jalenta distracted his most important actor. And he's disappointed that Severian did not reject her out of hand, given how that would have you know, put her nicely in her place. But he's really happy that his creation proved to be such a success. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I read yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. But do you know whose perspective we never get here? Jalenta's. Is she satisfied with her conquest? Is she annoyed? Is there a smile on her face as she advertises what they've been up to? Jalinta might rightfully be a, a blank slate, that, and that's why Wolf didn't bother describing her. But if Wolf wanted us to take a, the position 
that what happened was what Jalinta wanted, then you know he should have given us a signal. I think that's a really fascinating point that, yeah, we get how everybody reacts to this, but Jalinta, but the mm-hmm. one person who seems like, you know, she could be angry or she could, there could be some kind of clarification of mm-hmm. what she wanted, but we get none of that. And, right. um, and I don't like, if that's supposed to be intentional, then I wonder if it's supposed to be something about, again, the kind of desire that she represents or, mm-hmm. or she makes that she's still like, like she's not thinking in terms of consequences. It's just like, you know, this stuff just kind of, it happens. Cause all we know is that she's gonna be sad later when Talos tells her to go away. Right. Like yeah. that's the next time we see her really react to something. She never reacts to this. She right. never reacts to, to anything here. Yeah. Which is, she's the cipher. But yeah. That's, that's really the only time we see her off her game. Right. And not yeah. until she is, she's the, whatever she is, she's the, the, perfect creation of what that is until Talos rejects her. Yeah. So I don't know if it's something about like she represents, she's all supposed to be about falsity or fiction or, you know, simulacrums. Love without desire. Desire without love. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which could well be. um, But yeah, but as an allegory, this is murky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's a problem. Um, and, um, there is a little bit left in this chapter, but I think it makes sense f- to address it when we take up the subsequent chapter. And that chapter is the one I've been dreading since we started this thing. I know it means something. I don't know what it means. I know how to read it and I don't know what it says. I'm of course talking about eschatology and Genesis, and I'm going to creep along as slowly as I can, Craig. I, I dread this thing, but there's no point in trying to glide over it right <laughs> it's fun because an allegory is supposed to be something that has a nice clear message to it and what <laughs> we get is weird allegory <laughs> uh, we we get allegory done in the weird mode which is very weird so <laughs> if if i was confused about exactly how to take jalenta then hang on folks <laughs> we're going to be all talking about questions and, and confusions, possible theories along the way. But at least at this point in my thinking about this, I don't have a solid answer, but I know we may have Mark Aramini come along and mm-hmm. help us at some point with this, with his take. Um, and I know generally what he says, but I also know that I still got some other questions and, and, ways that I think it might be going in different directions from some of the ideas he has. So, so definitely settle back in. And, and I, if you're hoping that we'll just come in and explain the whole play to you, not going to happen. No, I can't can't (laughs) promise that, but hopefully you'll come out with some favored approaches and, and at least you'll have more finely crafted questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please, please uh, reach out to us. Uh, with your ideas and comments and thoughts and corrections, complaints about Jalenta and Severian and bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, email, Patreon site, the master Slack channel, if you are a master patron. Uh, And you can find out how to do all that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can tell your Wolfering friends. And, you know, until you hear from us next, when we're talking about eschatology, and Genesis. Actually, we're going to stick with Jalinta for one more week because I think she needs it. So we're going to have a little help very soon. 
and then it'll be time for eschatology and Genesis. May the Moira favor you. Bye, con Dios. <laughs> Okay, let's, um, all right. You know what? Let me, I'm going to stop this and start us over. <laughs> so, okay. Cause there, no, just go ahead. Actually just do that. Cause then we don't have to mess with it. So you it's, sure? It's well, then going, you'll yep. find it. I'm okay. Nah, it's okay. 12 minutes here. Here's how I'll know. Oh, <laughs> okay. No, no. <laughs> you want to hear a really annoying oh. sound? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I'll see that big, that big clink. And then like, okay, now I know where it is. All right. Okay. Her coiffure. Is it coiffure? Coiffure. Coiffure. Her coiffure, eh, the episode finished. We still have to do okay. episodes in the midst of all this other stuff. People to be like, here's what I think is going on. Like, just, yeah, just I can see there a big fight going. On. That would be and great. Well, that would be awesome if oh, we I, had a Morwenna style uh, debate about that'd be what cool. I don't on. want it to fall into one of those things like that always happens right when we see it before. It's just like, oh, either it's all like total misogyny or it's total yeah. vindication of somebody. Like, no, Wolf is going for something. He's going. It's not like you said. It's not naive. He's going after something. It just, I just think he needed to give this another pass, another thought about it, because when, you and, can't do this and, and and do the game that Wolf does where people are coming away saying, what the heck? Yeah. You know, why when, is very important for this? Uh, the command will also say that Talos has placed, like, I mean, skip that part. Blah, 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 we're getting a lot what? of people telling us, like, I finally caught up. I'm done binging. And <laughs> I think that, that <laughs> slows people down, you. it seems like. Yeah. It was yeah. amazing to me when people would binge, like, three months of stuff. Like, people would get us, like, when we were still, like, before while Severian was still in the tower. Yeah. Notes of people saying, I just listened to eight oh. episodes in a row and I can't wait for now. I have to wait for them. I'm like, now we got a couple of years of stuff out there. I just right. thought we should, we should call it shadow of the con. That's what we should. <laughs> so. Shit.
Yeah, I don't well, know. We'll, we'll I, think I, about. I, it. We'll figure out a name. I'm already writing a sponsor ad, by the way, for that. So, <laughs> so should we have three nights? I don't know. I still wish. Like one other thing that would be nice to know: when are they going to put our panel? Like if they put our panel on Thursday afternoon, that's going to. I mean, here's the tell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that will suck. Yeah. So Jolly is sometimes Asia. She's sometimes Jolenta. You know, like like those yeah. kinds of things happen. And so that's that's one reason why it gets crazy is because Maybe. the autark is sometimes an autark. Other times the autark is is Talos you know, winking at the audience. Right. Yeah. And... Exactly. So so that makes it super hard because there's no you can't really say there's a key to unlock everything and if you just like you know replace this name with this name then you'll then it'll make sense it's like no right. it doesn't work that way it's like each little section is kind of doing its own thing at its own time. right yeah and that makes it super hard yeah yeah I, and then well i mean you haven't seen my 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 second Your second, <laughs> my one. second nope. section mm -hmm. yet and you know we get into contessa and i you know i see a lot going on it's uh you know I don't mm -hmm. know. It's a, I, I, I'm not happy. I, I know it's, we're going to be like three different, three or four episodes on this. Yeah. And well, and the old archer, the, it sounded like the old west. Okay. <laughs> the, the old, old archer. Yeah. That's what it sounded like to me. So <laughs> careful. Don't get your diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The old orchard and the old orchard and the herb garden beyond it had been so silent, so frighted. Yeah. So freighted. One more time, yeah. The old orchard and the herb garden. Uh, herb garden. <laughs> well, actually, that's the but way. That's um, I, yeah. What's her face call, calls them? She thought these herbs. Yeah. And then, and then I, there's. Go, yeah, go, go ahead, on. Go ahead. Okay. Actually, and no. then there's. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No. 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 It's very good. <laughs> 